Welcome to the Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, where book clubs aren't just for women. And as your attorney, I advise you to have a beer. I'm Mike. I'm Nate. I'm Jimmy. And we're the Drunk Guys, and this week we are reading our Patreon-selected piece of literature, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. I'm going to start with a beer. Ugh. Got everywhere. It's like the American dream. Uh, so in this book, the characters do a heroic amount of drugs, much like everyone's favorite hero, Florida Man. <laughs> <laughs> this beer is called Florida Man, and I think someone else had it before. It's from Cigar City Brewing, and it's a double IPA, and it's in this fucking giant can. And It's a it thick boy. I don't know what it is. Brewed with a crazy amount of hops. Oh, 8.5% alcohol. Yeah, it's pretty solid. Like for a big brewery to put out, you know, Cigar City's in Florida. So for us to get it in New York, and it's not at, you know, a super, like a beer trade. They must distribute very widely. So this is a very good beer for that kind of size brewery. So Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Hunter S. Thompson's 1971 novel. Well, it came out in serial form in 1971. It's published as a book in 72. Probably his most famous thing. It's either that or the Hell's Angels book. It's his most famous thing. And it told me because you can't remember the name of the other one. <laughs> it's like the Hell's Angels or something like that. <laughs> it's called Hell's Angels. <laughs> I just go. Oh, there you go. It it follows a. It's like a fictionalized version of his attempts to cover some really not interesting news stories and make almost no effort to actually cover them. Well, his alter ego Raúl Duke travels with his attorney, Doctor Gonzo who they mention is Samoan every six and a half paragraphs. <laughs> or someone calls him a slur for some other ethnic group. It's not I Samoan. Know, are there slurs for, for Samoans? Um, I mean, they're known for their glandularity, Momoans. Well, uh, in reality, his attorney was, in fact, Hispanic and not Samoan, because he was a real dude. Yeah, Oscar Acosta. Who died like five minutes after this book came out? And I don't know. I'm not surprised. He disappeared. <laughs> he disappeared in Mexico. <laughs> he finally achieved full symbiosis with mescaline and ascended to another plane. So they never probably said, a plane full of cocaine. I think he was into a plane of a shallow grave after pissing <laughs> off a Mexican drug dealer. Possibly. So the setup is is I'm just calling him Hunter. It's Hunter S. Thompson is the main guy. He, yeah. he might call himself something else. So is, according to us, so hold on. According to Wikipedia, it's like semi-autobiographical. It also didn't, all, maybe a lot of these things happened, but they actually didn't happen all in one weekend. They happened in two weekends, and oh, he just sort oof. of combined them together. Oh, um, well, he's weak. Well, the and book that, takes place over like a week. I mean, and so. it, it is, he was kind of, it is, I think, more fictionalized than it lets on. Because as I was reading it, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is pretty crazy. But then in the Wikipedia page, it was like, no, nah, I, I, I think it was more fictionalized than that. Than just I mean, like it, everything happened exactly like this. It kind of had to be, I imagine, if he was taking that much drugs, it would be impossible to remember what actually happened. I did think he had a lot of detail for someone for like, oh, and then the bartender looked at me with an angry expression. It's kind of like... After I had been up for 80 hours on an insane number of different drugs. It's like, you really remember that? Do <laughs> you remember what he said to you? Well, there is much, much later in the book, there's the chapter of his tape recording. <laughs> the transcription of like what his, you know, 
portable tape thing, which must have been the size of a Buick in 1971. And it's As a talk boy. So he was recording a lot of shit and probably taking a lot of notes when he could, you know, his motor skills functioned enough to do so. But I'm sure there's a lot of embellishing or just filling in the blanks. So the book starts with Hunter S. Thompson, also known as the Duke, in the car with my attorney, who's that's what he's referred to as well, the entire Dr. Gonzo. Book. A couple times they call him that. Well, okay. Other than that, he's just referred to as my attorney. Uh, throughout the whole thing, but yet he's except the Raoul Duke is a doctor of journalism, so I guess they're both doctors. Well, they both lawyer, get those honorary degrees. Uh, he's a jur- juris doctorate, yeah. Uh, so anyway, they're in a convertible, red convertible, driving at a million miles an hour on a desert highway between L.A. and Las Vegas, and Hunter. As Thompson says, you know, and and we were being attacked by bats or something like yeah. that. And then so I stopped the car and opened the trunk and then he catalogs the amount of drugs that they have with him, which was truly amazing. The trunk of the car looked like a mobile police narcotics lab, <laughs> which does have meaning later in the book when you realize the police don't know anything about drugs. Um but he says, we had two bags of grass, 70... Honestly, not that much. Yeah, that's... that's I'm just saying. I think he means garbage bags, though. Um, oh. <laughs> 30-gallon bags. bags. Uh, two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, oh five God. sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers... And also, a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two <laughs> dozen amyls. Why does he have ether? Yeah. They, they, Did he get it from, like, a, a medical lab in 1910? I mean, he's just going to, like, put it on, like, use it to, to abduct people. <laughs> right? Isn't that I mean, you can get... People take uh, GHB recreationally as well. It's just taking enough of it to drug someone. What's GHB? So you're going to need to explain a lot of this drug stuff to me? GHB is roofies. Okay. Ether is, you know, used to knock people out the same way. But if you don't, if it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the dose that makes the poison or the indication of the dose that fucks you up. Oh, I thought ether was what you used to restore your MP in Final Fantasy. So I don't know. Fucking. It is. <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's also what they used to put you under for surgery in like the tens. It was better than what they, what they, than what they used to put it's you better under than surgery a hammer. in the 1870s, which was <laughs> booze. <laughs> yeah. Or nothing. <laughs> or it was bite on this strap. That's what they used. And don't be a passing pussy. out of pain. And they used shame. Don't worry. <laughs> Toxic it'll, masculinity. It'll only take fifteen <laughs> seconds to saw your arm off. You can do it. You can and, handle it. And then we'll stick a branding iron on it to stop the bleeding. <laughs> so it won't was, get infected. Yeah. That That's was what the, the state of medicine for. from like the Egyptians to, <laughs> to the Spanish American War. <laughs> Long stretch. Okay, so that's the heroic amount of drugs that they start with. I think he buys more drugs at some point in the book. I can't remember now. But they certainly do pretty much all of them. And he, po- oh, yeah, they did. They definitely do a lot. And, and on the car ride, he talks about, like, why they're even being there. It's because his editor basically called him. In, no, not his editor. Some person. It, it was actually Sports Illustrated, but he just had a sporting magazine had called him and told him to go on an assignment to Las Vegas to write about this motorbike race called the Mint something. The Mint, Mint 400. 400. And 
He's like, yeah, okay. And then gave, and then here's the car we rented for you, which was a red convertible and $300 in cash, which was a lot of cash, uh, which was a lot of money, especially because they then spent the whole night before just going around buying all the drugs. <laughs> they just spent all of it on the drugs so that they could fill up for their like for one day. Two and a half they days w- of work. Yeah. <laughs> like loaded for bear. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, it was any, if it was any longer, you need to spend some of the money on food. So it's really an efficiency thing. They do eat a tremendous amount of grapefruit and honeydew, which I guess yeah. I guess they yeah. were worried about getting rickets or scurvy or something. It's like just tossing a bunch of like hacked up pieces of grapefruit into a, a vat of tequila and saying that's food. Technically, technically, if you yes. have, I feel like if you have to chew it, it's a food. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, the opposite of a smoothie, right? So then they go, and this is to cover this like motorcycle race which had only started is a real thing the mint 400 that ran for a while and then they've only brought it back about 15 years ago or so but it was pretty new it started in the late 60s and it's just 400 miles in the sand dunes outside of las vegas or whatever according to wikipedia he was sent there to write captions for the pictures that's all his job was. <laughs> he didn't... I mean, this is what magazine money was back then. I mean, can you imagine even what magazines are these days? They practically don't exist. But magazines just had, like, so much money. They could send Hunter S. Thompson with $300 of cash and a convertible to go there just to write the captions for the photos. Which he doesn't look at. <laughs> no. <laughs> Apparently he did. He did later write do a write up of much of what would be at least the first part of Fear and Loathing. He submitted it to Sports Illustrated, and hey, what was the term? Aggressively. Yeah, it was aggressively. Aggressively rejected. Aggressively rejected. (laughs) Yes, they're like no, and go fuck yourself. (laughs) So kicked it back at him. (laughs) So they literally doing drugs was Olympic sport. They did not like want it at all. We forgot to mention the book's subtitle. Which yeah, is, we'll get back to that. Which is A Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. And he says, right, in this first like section, first chapter he or chapter or two, he's saying, We're we're off to Vegas to find the American dream. And once you call, you know, the American dream, just like <laughs> cherry berry pie. I would. Yeah. It's close enough. <laughs> I think that's the Pan American Dream. It's not apple pie. I mean, more of a pie dish than a, than a pan. <laughs> this is cherry berry pie by Resurgence. It is five percent alcohol, contains lactose, and has no other description on the can about what it is. But I'm pretty sure it's a fruited sour with lactose. So it's not. It is a little bit sweet. It's still definitely tart though. Tastes more like um, cherry seltzer actually. Though maybe a strong cherry seltzer. I don't know. It's, it's, it's good. It's very good. Doesn't taste like beer, but you know what? Uh, that's okay with me. So he goes to watch the race. I want to get back to the American Dream thing because there's like very little about it, in the, directly about it in the book. But like more of it comes later on in the plot. So they go to watch and it's in the desert. And there's like a car you could he could ride in that's kind of like tailing other reasons. And he's like, this is way too shitty and bumpy. Fuck this. 
I'm high as fuck. I can't do this. So then he stands there and he watches, you know, it's this huge loop. So a bunch of motorcycles pass by. <laughs> They're not going to be back for like 13 minutes. And then he fucking never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> also, fuck it, I've seen enough. It was just dust. He basically yeah. couldn't see anything. There was nothing to see because <laughs> it's sand in the desert. Motorcycles driving over sand. So it's just, it's just a dust storm. So it was truly... Truly useless. And he, he doesn't even pretend to do his job. He recognizes the futility of this assignment and says, fuck it, I'm going to go get outrageously high. <laughs> and he does. So that's his American dream. You know, if we should mention that they also pick up a hitchhiker and scare the fuck out of that kid and then just leave him. Like, I mean, just he wants to get, out. to get away. Who they then, though he then finds later again, <laughs> hey, it's the hitchhiker from before. So Hunter S. Thompson and his attorney go they like hang out in the hotel room and just do a lot of drugs and completely lose track of all time or space and then they next day is the uh, uh bike race which they which was a complete nothing you know couldn't even see anything doesn't even pretend to do his job so he leaves which they do more drugs and then like in between that is like descriptions about like what the drugs are like I'm especially used like what it's like on ether, which, you know, and what it's like, you know, and then acid and then on mescaline. And it's, and it's kind of like they're going back and forth and, and, and the, the truly incomprehensible volume of drugs that they are doing. And drinking a lot of alcohol with it. Yeah. And that's, though I have heard that when you are tripping balls hard, you can drink like it's water. Your body doesn't understand, like acknowledge it, but everyone's different. Well, for your body to at that point, for your body to worry about dealing with the alcohol issue, it's like rearranging the furniture on the Hindenburg, like in terms of <laughs> biological processes. It's like fucking. That's fine. That that is a, that is a future in, problem. Like when he comes into the bathroom, and the lawyer is in the bathtub with the radio blasting as loud as he can. He wants him to throw the radio plugged in into the bathtub at the peak of the white rabbit song yeah by jefferson uh, airplane yeah that's that's what chewing on an entire i had to look up what a blotter was because i don't know the, the terms that good i think but, it's you know, when old takes, school when someone takes too. acid you know they give you a little piece of paper like like tiny like like a, a, a ninth of a postage stamp that's snipped off of a sheet of paper the sheet is the blotter so he's taking like a hundred like doses. Like a thousand doses of acid <laughs> at one time. Also, like earlier when they're first driving, they have the radio in the car playing and a tape deck that they only <laughs> have one song and it's Sympathy <laughs> for the Devil and they're playing them both at full volume <laughs> while they're shouting and like brandishing a gun and just picking up a hitchhiker. <laughs> it's... it's it's very, there's a lot of very funny moments like that. I mean, there's amazing scenes. But there's not much plot for this first half besides them pretending to do work for two minutes and then just fucking over everybody they can. <laughs> just, just ruin, taking, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much easier fraud was in, <laughs> in 1971. Yeah. Yeah. Almost effortless. You can and just he's like, yeah, write we, a bad check and nobody knows for days. Yeah, my attorney paid with a check. We knew to be, we knew that would, you know, was, was felt, was fake. Or no, well, not fake, but just like, you know, you know there's no money. It was a check that he took from one of his clients who was a drug dealer, which has got to be illegal. Well, I think he just endorsed it over to the, 
like that was his payment from the from the drug from the drug dealer client. And I thought the payment was the gun. Oh, that was a different thing. A different, a different <laughs> client. A different client drug dealer, probably. So then, I mean, that's really like the first half of the book. It's <laughs> them fucking up shit. And then the lawyer dips out and um, he drives incredibly onto the paranoid. airplane runway. Just some funny, like, before he leaves, there was a couple of funny things. Like I like when they first get to the hotel. I forget what the first hotel was. Was it the Americana? And the Hotel Flamingo was the second one they go to. But... I can't find that quote now, but they pull up to the front of the hotel and everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, well, we're here to check in. And he's like, I didn't, we had driven over so many curbs that I didn't <laughs> even realize I was in front of the door of this hotel. They're also aggressively pounding liquor. Oh yeah. While driving on psychedelics. And I think this is the time when they're like, we're friends with, I forget which celebrity was in there, just happened to have a convention inside the hotel or was speaking at a convention. Was it Debbie Reynolds? I think it was this Debbie Reynolds. They yeah. were like, oh, yeah, we're friends with Debbie Reynolds. We and go, I just, go, and they didn't even know. They're just like, I go, they just, they just bluff their way into things. And the Lord's like, I'm fucking friends with Debbie. When she hears this, she's going to be pissed. And they're like, oh, fuck, I guess we better tolerate these assholes. <laughs> and then they go in and they see Debbie Reynolds speaking. Like, wow, that worked out really well. <laughs> and then they leave. They don't even listen to <laughs> Just like, fuck, I don't want to be here. Well, I think they're like really high, and so they're just acting incredibly strange, and they get kicked <laughs> out. Well, they run out on their bill, but not before they get the maids to to put six hundred bars of soap into the car. Oh yeah, I'm trying to find. I had that highlighted too. It says we had ordered everything into that room that human hands could carry, including about six hundred bars of translucent Neutrogena soap. <laughs> so they don't eat, they don't sleep. I'm like you know what we should do. <laughs> and they also destroy the room Or they destroy oh, the yeah. second room More specifically But they fucking ruin everything <laughs> And just put everything Put it on my bill Put it on my room And then the lawyer leaves And he takes He doesn't take the car Right? Hunter S. Thompson has the car Which they call the Red Shark And you know what sharks do? <laughs> sharks bite This beer is called Shark Bite <laughs> This is from South Shore Craft Brewery and it's called Shark Bite, an IPA. And it says, did we have this before? Did I have this already? I don't think, it was, I don't I think don't so. Know. But I like that it says, I think we need a bigger keg on the can. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in Long Island. South Shore is in Oceanside, New York. And uh, it's, it's made with an impressive combination of Bravo, Galaxy, Citra, and Mosaic. Coming in at 8% alcohol. That's pretty, pretty darn good. We should say, though, <laughs> these beers, Nate, you look excited. <laughs> <laughs> these beers are oh, brought to you, you shouldn't have told me that it was this week and then you would have gone oh nate you gotta read those <laughs> no I, I liked seeing the dread from the, the last minutes on your face these beers are brought to us by supporters of patreon and if you want to support the podcast you can head over to patreon.com slash drunk guys book club and uh help us out with our drinking habit our attorneys advise you to do it but they also advise you it is not tax deductible. But you will get uh, early access to episodes, though. exclusive content. Join us for our live episodes, which one is coming up in the near in June. Get f- shit mailed to you from us. Vote in our monthly book poll. But most importantly, right now, get shouted out on that book poll episode. And Nate, can you thank those fine people? <laughs> Some of them are fine. <laughs> Not all. Okay, I would like to thank William, Sophia, Book Slut Maria, David, Derek, Carol, Sarah, Nick, 
Joseph, Jeff, Yolande, Tracy, Hunter, not Hunter S. Thompson, he's dead, uh, Jennifer, <laughs> Will Smith left fresh prints on my face after I watched his dog. <laughs> I thought he liked watching bitches get railed. <laughs> That's and <laughs> I'm thrilled to announce the opening of my new business, Nate's Doggy Massage Parlor. And yes, it's that kind of massage parlor. Woof, <laughs> that's tough, Nate. Rolling in the dough. Uh, Anita Tolik, <laughs> Barry, Julian, Alec. No, no, no. That's the whole oh, name. You got to read that whole that's name. A, okay. Alec many scrotes? <laughs> <laughs> you do? Wow. Only dog ones? Or? Uh, and now there's the no, one. they're fixed. And <laughs> Vladimir Putin it to Nate's mom. <laughs> also topical. <laughs> it's an educational Russell? podcast. <laughs> Russell, Grace, Catherine, Colton. Oh, boy. Oh, come on. This one's obvious. <laughs> Wanda Hauser Cuntsmell. <laughs> did did oh, you hear it? it? Yep. <laughs> I heard it after I said it. <laughs> Steven, Nick, Man Love Book Review Fan, Joe, Crab, Michael, Daniel, Existentialist Watermelon, Hayden, Smile and Bend Over Now, Emotional Support Burrito, and CL. Woo. <sighs> Thanks, patrons. Some of you. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and again, if you want to join that list of austere book scholars, you can head over to patreon.com slash drunk guys book club or help us out by just leaving a review wherever you're listening and making it uh, five stars. One for every time these guys get, well, if I said every time they get high, then you, there's an infinite One number. for every 47 times they eat a button of mescaline. <laughs> <laughs> so towards the second half, the attorney guy is so freaked out and paranoid, he just leaves. And he gets lead. on a plane. He flies back to L.A. Yeah, this was back in the good old days when you could just walk up to a plane and get on it. Or drive in front of it as it's about to take off. <laughs> well, nobody's telling the story, but like, was it Panama or Peru? I forget where it was in, in South or Central America where he talked about the time he tried to get onto the plane that was taking off and ran up behind it. He said, oh, yeah. Those, those uh, like the afterburner on the turbines or whatever <laughs> would have roasted me alive if I wasn't so fucking high that I didn't notice. <laughs> and then they just Good burn PCP. Yeah, seriously. That's like the only drug they don't do in this. Was Kenny existed thing yet, yet. <laughs> in this time? No, I don't think, I don't think it exists yet. So uh, he's then kind of panics, he being Hunter S. Thompson's character. He's like, what the fuck am I going to do here? I am, I'm fucked. I, I owe all this money and I'm screwed and then he is calculating well he my checkout time is not until noon so if i just leave now i can have like two hours of just flooring it before they notice but then he gets a telegram he gets a telegram from i i want to say a different editor or a different no newspaper. it's from, isn't it from, from the, the same it's guy from the attorney isn't it no i think it's from a different guy though i could be wrong anyway it's from, no, it's from he, a different, he, he, he tells him for a while first he gets a telegram later on because he, he makes somehow, it, he makes it like he makes it several hours, and he gets pulled over by that cop, and the cop's like, "Oh yeah, you're obviously no, hammered." I think he got the telegram, decided to leave anyway, but then decided to go back. Because how oh, would he right, get the yeah. telegram if he's halfway to? Yeah, he got the telegram LA again. 
You have and to get he the calls, telegram first. He calls the lawyer from where he gets pulled over, and lawyer's like, "Where the fuck are you? I'm I'm on my way back." He's like, "Just kidding. I'm I'm at the hotel already." Ha ha ha. <laughs> and and he's like, "But we arranged it for you. We've got this <sighs> new thing where you're going to cover a convention of cops, and it's specifically the was it the district, district, district attorney, attorney attorney's convention narcotics task force on narcotics." You're going to cover it. And we've rented you a white convertible. We've got this thing, and we'll pay you so much, whatever it is. He just says, massive payout, 50,000 words. And so he, after fleeing, after because he's paranoid, he's been up for, you know, 80 hours and on drugs. He's driving back to L.A., but then he turns around. He gets pulled over by a cop. So by a cop and, or more like the cops, you know, the, the lights are on behind him. And... He's like, I'm, I've got this plan where I'm going, to, I'm going to floor it and make them chase me, but then immediately get off the next exit and, turn, and, and pull off to the side. So the but with, his, can, with his blinker on the whole time, like he's going to turn up, like he's going <laughs> to yeah. pull over, and he has this whole thing, I'm going to fuck with his head. He's not going to know what I'm doing. I'm like, what? I was just looking for a place to pull over, officer. And he does, he like fucking Tokyo drifts <laughs> into this uh, exit ramp and whips it around. And he's waiting there by the car as the cop pulls up all flustered and pissed off. But he the ruins cop, the plan. And he ruins it because he has a beer in his hand. And like a dozen in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and immediately he's like, oh, whoops, that was bad. And then, you know, of course he's like, oh, I'm going to get in huge trouble. But the cop goes, you're just going to, like, pull over somewhere and go to sleep, right? You're not going to, you're, you're not, you're just going to keep, doing keep driving after he's, like, caught with an open container. It's because he's, time. like, a mile and a half from the end of that cop's jurisdiction. And he's like, I don't fucking want to deal with this. It's a lot of paperwork. Because he says, like, oh, if I go to the, is this town nearby? And he's like, that's two point whatever miles outside of this county. So whatever you do there, I don't care. Like, got it, officer. And then he just fucking books it and <laughs> leaves again. But then instead of going somewhere and taking a nap, he turns around and goes back the other way back to Las Vegas. <laughs> or maybe he was already on his way back to Las Vegas. Uh, one of the two. And so then he goes back to Las Vegas and he goes and he checks in at, the other, at a different hotel. This one is the Flamingo, I think. Yeah. Now, in reality, at least according to Wikipedia, this second thing probably happened about a month later. It wasn't really like the same day or the same weekend. It actually was a month later, but he really did go back a month later to Las Vegas with the same with his same attorney, and they had more adventures. So that like sort of happened just in a slightly different time frame. And he goes back, he checks into the other hotel. Also, I've actually never been to Las Vegas myself, but Las Vegas of 1970 was still a much seedier, as far as I understand, seedier, darker Las Vegas. Openly seedier. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's It's still just as seedy. It's not. It's not the like you know. Oh, it's safe to bring your kids. Kind of like amusement park vibe that they you can bring your kids as long as they love doing drugs off a dead body (laughs) it was still obviously mobbed up at this time yeah yes so then he goes which he mentions just once where he's like i don't care who owns it whether it's lucky luciano or just a different dude whatever good luck gambino (laughs) i can't think of any more lucky synonyms 
I do like he takes at this point around here an inventory of his drugs again. <laughs> and after what has been, what, two days? He says, the stash was a hopeless mess. All churned together and half crushed. Some of the mescaline pellets had disintegrated into a reddish brown powder, but I counted about 35 or 40 still intact. My attorney had eaten all the reds, but there was quite a bit of speed left. No more grass, the Coke bottle empty, one acid blotter, a nice brown lump of opium hash, and six loose animals. Not enough for anything serious. (laughs) Do you know what mescaline is? Is it like peyote? That's my guess. Yeah, it's fucking peyote. Like, you smoke a little peyote, you're tripping balls for a day. Or at least hours of a hard vision quest trip. And they're like eating them like those little shitty candies you got as a kid where it was like a button on the paper and you rip it off and oh, it's yeah. mostly paper and you keep eating it anyway. Yeah. At a certain point, you just give up and you just eat the paper and the candy. <laughs> <laughs> it's fiber. Yeah. And peyote's what? It's like a little, it's like a cactus or something? Um, yeah. I don't really know. I, th- I think so. It's a desert, desert plant. You're speaking... Oh, from clinical knowledge, Jimmy, about the I have never I've never even seen or known someone that has done peyote. I've spoken to it's, someone who did back in the day, named my dad. And <laughs> <laughs> Your dad did peyote? My dad did a lot of drugs, apparently. Still does too. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you tell the stories like you look at it and it was like it's so gross looking. <laughs> it's just it's like desiccated cactus and like i'm supposed to smoke this thing all right whatever man and then after a while you don't give a fuck anymore because you're you're fucking tripping balls yeah i'm losing track of what happens in the book at this point Uh, i finished it this morning he goes back to the hotel and he walks in and the lawyer's already there okay so actually well first well he gets to the hotel and he's checking in and they're at the but the hotel is full because of the cop the district attorney convention and and there's clearly a guy the the guy in front of him in line is like um i have a reservation here he's like oh no i'm sorry we your reservation got moved oh, yeah. to a different one <laughs> a much shittier and motel he's so mad and then hunter s thompson who's high as fuck just walks up and is like uh yes my reservation is under the name of and i think he gives the lawyer's name he's like oh yes right here sir right this way and the guy is like so pissed well hunter so thomas like, when he shows up with the car he looks disgusting like he hasn't shaved <laughs> in several days or bathed presumably he's been awake for three days he's wearing like really weird shit he's wearing like a bird hunting vest like one of those like it was like an acapulco shirt he kept calling it yeah he's got like a hawaiian kind of shirt i think but then he's wearing this vest like the kind that um the guy from blues traveler has with all his harmonicas in it (laughs) (laughs) like bird shit or like that kind of a vest and he's wearing like bermuda shorts and he and he he must smell he must not i mean he must be gross and he you probably get high off of inhaling his scent and he comes in with this super flashy car and like throws his keys at the guy and like and and hundred park it for me yeah Yeah. take care of it guys and you know there's a nickel for you whatever he says and then he comes in and demands the room. It's like people in that kind of scenario, when people see this guy who looks like a bum, but has the trappings of wealth, they say, this, <laughs> this guy must be someone that you have to deal with. He knows what's up. You know, so that they have to at least be patient with him. <laughs> you can't just toss him out like they want to because he has money. Uh, so then eventually they, you, he, he goes up to the room and, and there's a fucking like naked fat girl on the floor. Like passed out, right? Don't they go to the convention first? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they 
They they go to the. It kind of doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. matter you're right. But they go as as reporters. But they're fucking incredibly high still. No, they don't go as reporters. They like pre- they pretend to be investigators. Yeah. Where's a private? His name tag says you know Raul Duke, no, private but, investigator. But they they do they they find her in the room first. That's how he sees that the lawyer is back because the lawyer's mm. already checked into the room and he walks in and this naked chick is there. The lawyer is also na- naked in the bathroom, blasting stuff and screaming. And there are portraits of Barbara Streisand all over the whole room. It's like a scene from Seven, but like a weird version of it. And, and so she, they uh, like, ditch her. They ditch her. She also like doesn't have a single line. She doesn't say anything. She's just like this extra character well, they have to deal she's, with. She's been she's been dosed with a shitload of acid, and she's not as experienced as they are. So she's on her own journey. But she's like uh, from the like I forget where she's from exactly, but. Something like the Midwest. Yeah, like a small like town now. gal who's run away from home and is 18. And they realize, oh, Wants fuck, to meet Barbara Streisand. If they catch us with her, they're going to immediately assume we've abducted and raped this girl. Which it's not clear if that hasn't happened to some yeah, degree. Yeah, there is a non-zero chance that that could be what happened. Certainly by the, today's understanding of consent. Should happen. That would not be cool. And so they trick her into going to another hotel... Under the pretense that Barbara Streisand wants to see her paintings of her, right? She's doing a residency there, but it doesn't start for two weeks and they don't tell her that. (laughs) (laughs) But then she immediately figures it, she gets there and she calls them back. And I forget how they get her to like never call here again. Oh, like they they had to go fight the the other um, guy in the desert. (laughs) They tell, they tell a nurse, no, not a nurse. They tell a maid or the front desk person. He tells the front desk that she is a case study because they're, the front desk assumes that these two guys are cops because everyone is in there for the convention. And they tell her that she is a laudanum addict case study and to ignore anything she says, but like report to them, but do not give away that they're still there. And later on, uh, the lawyer calls her and he fakes a police raid that they're torturing him to get, his, to get her location and so yeah, he, he holds he, the she phone hangs up. two feet away from his face and screams like, yeah. "You're not taking you'll, you're not taking me alive, coppers, or you know something like that." <laughs> yeah, she. <laughs> I mean, doesn't say that, but you know, he says he, he makes up this whole scene, and then he like kicks the phone, and then like has this whole like struggle, and then hangs it up. <laughs> no, all right, good. We don't have to worry about her anymore. And then they go to the convention <laughs> to listen to the speakers. And they really only go to like one, one. they go to the first afternoon. I don't think they really do more than that. The first afternoon, no, which is like don't. the opening remarks that take all afternoon. How fucking boring must that have been? But they're so high. They're like, because they did more drugs, you know, waiting for it to start. They're like so high and haven't slept in three days or four days at this point. No, Just listening to... Bits. Listening to the speaker talk about the dangers of drugs and specifically the the dangers of the dope fiend, right? Which he calls, uh, this is the kind of dangerous gibberish that used to be posted in the form of mimeographed bulletins in police department locker rooms. That's how he describes the speech because these guys are like woefully out of date with what drug culture is up to. It's like Reefer Madness, the convention, yeah. And they're Which into was like Mary the 1940s. Jane. Forties. It's the thing. Reefer Madness. The film I think is from the thirties. Actually, thirties. Okay, there you Ooh, go. Yeah. 
Did you ever see it? It's 1936. It's, it's terrible. It's hilarious. There's a guy talking to another dude. He's like, look at here, this story. A young man smoked marijuana, marijuana, went home and killed his entire family with an axe. It's like, what? <laughs> they, God, they tried to take the Funyuns from him. <laughs> yeah, there's a, they there's, tried to turn off fish during the second song on the set. Which was two hours in. <laughs> they, uh, they actually killed themselves with the axe. Gave <laughs> himself a, a full lobotomy so he could actually appreciate fish's music. But the guys like take one puff of a of a marijuana cigarette and then just dramatically change character and start smacking people and stuff. It's it's like it's so stupid. It's clearly made by people who have never encountered pot. Much like everyone at this convention who has never encountered drugs. That's kind of the the joke, I guess, in this part of the book. And it's still exactly that way today. They're still like sadly outdated right there you ever you, know, you ever see these uh there's these news articles all the time where like police uh raided a place and they they found fentanyl in the room and several of the police officers like brushed brushed against their sleeves and they had to be taken to the hospital and given injections because they were they were passing out and falling unconscious like wearing hazmat suits because there's fentanyl in the house it's like um you know the, the generals always learn to fight the last war <laughs> <laughs> that's what the police said. There's still like crack cocaine. <laughs> Not even I think it's close. like Chernobyl. <laughs> uh, on a similar note, I once saw this presentation by police officers, by his police officer, and they were talking about gangs. So this was not about drugs. It was about gangs. And that there was some like interesting stuff about it. But then at the end, somebody asks, so why do people join gangs? And the person said, oh, no. They said, well, oh, you no. know, oh, it's because oh, of the, the video games, like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> and I was like... That's why his oh, gangs only started what? in 2003. <laughs> I was like, the kids are all into the video games with all the violence. And it was like, holy shit. So that whole... That, uh, that is obviously fucking bullshit. So the whole presentation you just gave, I thought you knew something about gangs. Now I don't think you do. Like... This, and they were from the police. They were in the gang unit in the NYPD, <laughs> and that's what they said. I was like, "Oh my god!" Anyway, so with this, which reminded that—that's what I thought of when he talked about when he talked about how the the cops had no idea what drugs were, what drug culture was, and this was before Nixon had officially launched the war on drugs. I think I think that was a little bit later. Yeah. No, maybe he already had. It was around then. I feel like Hunter S. Thompson would have mentioned war on drugs had that been a thing. Mm, fair. I, I like the part where he's listing the different like levels of drug user. Like, oh, if someone yeah. is not drug user, they are a square, but if they do a little bit of drugs, they're cool. No, cool, was they're, the, cool was the top. Cool was the top one. Or like, hip was uh, second and like with it or some, I don't know, some dumb shit for the like tiers of drug user. Or hepcats. <laughs> <laughs> it's, they call him uh, the bee's knees. <laughs> like this, this guy's real cool, Daddy O. Says in uh, descending order, it's <laughs> the drug pyramid. Cool, groovy, hip, and square. There you go. And I like this. The square is seldom, if ever, cool. He is not <laughs> with it. That is, he doesn't know what's happening. But if he manages to figure it out, he moves up a notch to hip. 
And if he could bring himself to approve of what's happening, he becomes groovy. <laughs> and after that, with much luck and perseverance, he can rise to the rank of cool. I can hear this as a David Attenborough documentary. <laughs> the groovy man does not know he's groovy. In his native habitat. <laughs> but he knows about. what's happening. <laughs> so yeah, they, just, they don't know shit. And then the attorney guy flips out and because it's not like a neatly like or neat auditorium with aisles it's a convention room with you know tables and chairs been kind of all over the place it takes him like a a comically long amount of time to get out of the room because he's just falling on people and like not able to just walk out in a straight line he's trying not to puke on them well that's what hunter that's yeah he's trying not to puke and then hunter's time's like i don't want to fucking stay here either so then he gets up and he's like, oh i'm gonna throw up excuse me and everyone just like parts they just let him go he's like i was out in 13 <laughs> seconds it takes forever it's like a it's like something from the office like an overly long cringy thing where the guy's just Falling on police oh, officers yeah. who are getting mad, <laughs> not moving, kicking people in the shin. <laughs> Another just very funny image uh, that didn't serve much of a purpose, but was just Both there. Just sweating profusely, reeking of peyote. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking and, of which, they're in a room full of narcs, and no one knows these guys are tweaking like nothing has ever tweaked before. I think that's... <laughs> The commentary he's offering. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they go to that bar afterwards and talk to the cop about how in Southern California <laughs> there's blood-sucking, decapitating drug addicts, and the only way to fight back is to cut their heads off to warn the other ones and like not tell anyone about it. And the guy's just like, Jesus, I didn't know it was that bad. It's like, yeah, man, get ready. It's coming to your neighborhood next. So this is like kind of a real thing. He tells like there's Satanists. And he's kind of oh, yeah, Satanist. playing off of the Charles Manson shit. Because um, that was just like, the, the, the Satanic Panic, too. Well, that was like the 80s, right? The Satanic. Oh, yeah, that was the 80s. But <laughs> it had yet to come full fruition. But he, but that was all bullshit, right? The people, there was a Satanic cult. Absolutely. Abducting children bullshit. and murdering families. But that's exactly what they described to this cop. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, it happens in California. Maybe this was the source of he, all of the satanic he panic. He did it. He started that shit. <laughs> Another thing he started, the, well, we forgot to mention before, the one of the drugs they do is adrenochrome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That he, and he even mentions like children in like the same paragraph or two as like where you get it. So it's like, did he start QAnon? <laughs> Did Hunter S. Thompson start QAnon? Well, he didn't get the adrenaline from a pizzeria. <laughs> that's where the that's where you get the kids. That's where the, the, good, the good adrenochrome comes from. You suck out their pineal glands. Honestly, it. I couldn't tell if that one was real or not. I don't know either. I mean, it's it's just it's just adrenaline. It's basically just like doing epinephrine. Yeah, it is the oxidation. It is produced by the oxidation of adrenaline or epinephrine. But can you suck it out of another person's gland and get high off of it? It has to I'm be sure it's a real alive. thing. <laughs> Someone has tried Hunter S. Thompson has tried So according to Wikipedia This book is likely the origin of current myths Surrounding this compound So he really did start QAnon He started Man, really, the QAnon dude got thing shit done. The thing that the QAnon The QAnoners are obsessed with Hunter S. Thompson Thanks Do you think the plural of Hunter S. Thompson is Hunter's Thompson? <laughs> it's like, like Postmaster General. General Postmaster's General uh, yeah, Hunter's Thompson. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but where's the Hunter's S. Thompson? Is that what you... Hunter's Thompson. The S is just the plural. They just it, it gets it's it gets apostrophed. It's not like moose. <laughs> just... Meese. 
Meese, right? <laughs> so then they, I like they, there's another just random scene where they go to a diner and have an, I think this is it. There's some two, pie. There's two diner scenes, right? There's one where they, where he insults the waitress. Yeah, that's this one. <laughs> where he, passed, he being the Samoan attorney, passes a note to the waitress after they order and she's like, get the <laughs> fuck out. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, and Hunter's Thompson doesn't know what the hell was on that paper. <laughs> he goes, instead of getting out, he cuts the well, first, phone he's like, off of what, the what, wall. What, what's wrong? That's the name of a racehorse. <laughs> that I used to own. And he wrote That's on the what he said. Backdoor beauty? <laughs> and passes it to the stranger. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. And then he takes like a fucking... Bowie knife, whatever those are called, like a crocodile Dundee knife, and just cuts the phone off the cable and then puts it back, right? And then he just sits down to eat his pot and eat you know, the he hamburger. He her about getting the pie and basically threatens her with a knife saying, give me a whole pie. Well, he, how much is that pie? She's like, 35 cents a slice. Like, how much for the whole pie? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't eaten in days. Is this also the scene where they argue about whether or not to get the tacos? Or is that the next diner scene? I think, I think that was the, the next, next diner. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the next diner. In a short book with so many drugs. Because they, they think the American Dream is the name of the old taco restaurant or something. Oh, that's the name of the... Isn't that the name of like the... He's like, he's looking, he said he's looking for the American Dream. And they think that's it's the name it's of some old club or something. dilapidated club with tacos or some shit. But it turned out to be an empty field where there's not... Where something had burned down years before. <laughs> Which I'm sure it's a metaphor. Like a metaphor. Yeah, it's, I'm sure that's meaningful. But in that diner scene, they just argue over the merits of ordering five for a dollar tacos. <laughs> and he's like, five for a dollar? Those are shitty tacos. You shouldn't get them. He's like, that's exactly why you do get them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a real debate. It's a real debate we all have with ourselves. I mean, just it's, the, it's the entire theory behind White Castle. <laughs> uh, it is not a theory. That shit works. <laughs> you have nearly a century of... Uh, Reproduced studies there <laughs> They reproduce out of your ass pretty quickly Oh yeah It's it's like turns It just turns your colon into a luge for poop <laughs> Just as many turns Why do you think they call it White Castle If you don't spend the next day on the throne <laughs> That's That's science Some 4D thinking <laughs> And then he pontificates for a while, and then the book is over. Yeah. Does anything else happen? Bunch of this stupid. Is, well, they go back to the hotel, oh, and the he, he finds the thing. attorney. Oh, he, he right, finds yes. the attorney puking in his own shoes <laughs> in <laughs> I, the closet because <laughs> he thought it was the bathroom. But is, and then he doesn't find it. The maid. The maid. <laughs> finds yeah. It. The maid came in that morning. We'd forgotten to hang out the "Do Not Disturb" sign. So when she wandered into the room and started. <laughs> And startled my attorney, who was kneeling stark naked in the closet, vomiting into his own shoes, thinking he was actually in the bathroom, and then suddenly looking up to see a woman with a face like Mickey Rooney staring down at him, unable to speak, trembling with fear and confusion. I was reading this on the train, and I I had to laugh out loud. That was just such a ridiculous (laughs) bunch of words. There are many brand new sentences in this. And uh, then she's fucking... Really, you know, obviously and logically freaked the fuck out by the 300-pound Samoan guy puking in 
<laughs> and he's ass naked in the closet in the room that is just a wreck. It said at the bathroom at this point was six inches deep with soap bars, vomit, and grapefruit rinds mixed with broken glass. I had to put on my boots anytime I took a piss. I mean, I feel like at this point, why are they just pissing on the floor directly? But that'll ruin the lasagna stew they're making. <laughs> So they all have they improvise this thing where they pretend to be undercover cops again, and she's going to be an informant, and they're going to pay her a thousand dollars. So you're going to get a call from our contact in a few days, uh, and you have to look out for whatever. And he's going to pay you a thousand dollars a month, and she's like, "Oh shit, really? Who's going to?" I imagine the guy is still naked and covered in vomit during this. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the uh, he just the. Uh, a contact is going to reach out to you, so don't bother us about that money. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're just right back to getting high. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> then he goes to a casino. Oh, but it's also after, sorry, I forgot. When she screams after seeing him, he tries to like force an ice bag into her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and then they offer her the deal. And by the end of it, she's very happy to have met them. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. Then I don't remember what happens. Then he goes back to a casino and he gets kicked out because they have a picture of him saying, you're not allowed in here. And he turns to be a cop again. I don't know. This scene was kind of short. And then he goes to the airport and buys a pack of poppers from the airport drugstore with his Doctor of Divinity card. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you need a prescription for that. He's like, what if I'm a doctor? He's like, that's fine. He shows, yeah, from he's... He got the equivalent of a universal life church. <laughs> and the woman, oh, I'm so sorry, doctor. There's so many freaks out there today. And he's like, you never be too careful, he said, as he opened the capsule and snorted it in front of her. <laughs> His asshole grew three sizes that day, they say. Uh, and that's the end. Yeah. Then he goes home. So to live life exactly like that weekend had been. Yeah. For the next uh, 35 years until he killed himself. I can't believe he didn't die any other way. The only thing that could kill him was him. <laughs> he was he had proven himself to be immortal and life's boring <laughs> when you're immortal, I guess. <laughs> He'd done man. all the drugs. He's like, I'm done. Actually his um his uh the, like the, the funeral note he left for uh, that suicide note he left for his wife is really weird, but also really fitting for this character, right? <laughs> no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That's 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I am always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your age. Relax. This won't hurt. Jesus. Hmm. Spoken word. <laughs> and then he shot himself in the head while he had his wife on the phone. And that his is... fan, like his kids or someone, was in the other room and they heard the gunshot. Like, that was probably him dropping something. <laughs> <laughs> and then he have to wonder to get right away. who would marry him i, I don't even he know. seems like a nightmare to be around if you look at the pictures of him and um the lawyer guy from 1971 there's this picture of them he's wearing like this stupid hat like gilligan hat and the dark sunglasses it looks like he has a wedding ring on his finger <laughs> <laughs> um, and then his like last will and testament or whatever he wanted his ashes shot out of a cannon <laughs> and Johnny mm-hmm. Depp made that happen 
Well, you know, you do what you can. And then Johnny Depp has spent the last 20 years trying to catch up to him in drug use. Impossible. It can't be done. Well, it's, it's easier to do when you live on your own drug he's like, island. He's like four Keith Richards. Yeah. So, uh, Neat, you had brought it up earlier, the subtitle. What do you think about that? So, the American dream. You know, he, he says, what is it? The search for the American dream? No. A savage journey to the heart of the American dream. Okay. So, I feel like what sort of least what he was trying to say or was kind of talking about, he was also talking about the 60s counterculture and how it was definitely did not work. But, um, okay. What is the American dream? It's the idea that, you know, it's not just, you know, that having a... You can always improve yourself. You can be better. You can move up in life. You can, you know, be rich from your own hard hard work, have the house with the yard and the white picket fence. You know, that's like the American dream that you can, that you can make it. And, but he, he, he doesn't really address that so much in the book, except I think what he's trying to say is that America doesn't do that. What America has is Las Vegas, like Las Vegas (laughs) seediness. Of gambling and vice, if the spectacle, the shallow spectacle with gambling, that's really America. That's really the American dream. And, you know, degenerate, you know, civilization that we live in. It's not the Horatio Alger stuff that he mentions in the beginning. Mentions Horatio, Horatio Alger like a dozen times. Yeah. Which were these... I want to say like 1890s books. I'm not sure exactly when they're from, but something like that. Horatio Alger was this author who wrote a shit ton of books where like a paper boy or a shoeshine boy through pure, you know, dint of his effort and uh, charm works his way up. Though the, the stereotype is that he becomes rich Christian at the beliefs. end of the book, but usually just becomes not poor. What's that, Jimmy? Is it, is it, do they also hold uh, sincere Christian beliefs that God will save them? I'm sure that's an element of, like, if you just keep your nose clean and work hard, you will improve your status in life. Mm. Um, But he's gotten the uh, stereotype or whatever of it being, you'll become rich, which is not exactly what was in his books. Um, Anyway, so that was his, like, cynical take on what America means or what America is about, I think he was trying to say. And he also, and just so happens that the Wikipedia page also reproduces the wave speech, which is... Uh, a couple of paragraphs that he talks about where he's really, this is the part where he's talking about the sixties, the sixties counterculture. And he was writing this really in like 1970, 1971, you know, when he talks about, you know, San Francisco in the sixties, which was really like the ground zero. Four years of the sixties too. It's really, yeah, they're definitely up. (laughs) And, you know, uh, he talks about, you know, history is hard to know, but, Every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash, which is what the counter, which is what the hippies in, in San Francisco thought was happening. Like they were, that they were, had started something new and different. And as he, if I'm, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff and quoting later, he says, um, the sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. 
So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can see, you can almost see the high water mark, the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. And so what I think he means, really, you, can, you can't actually see San Francisco from Las Vegas, but he's talking about like looking, looking west towards the mountains. And, and just for people who were like in it at the time, in the 60s, and once the 70s started, you know, clearly, uh, you know, the countercultural revolution wasn't happening, not only because uh, Nixon had been elected in a landslide, but it was, but it was very surprising. It was shocking that simply by, you know, reading enough books and playing enough rock and roll that they couldn't change the world, you know? <laughs> how, how, does, how, how could that be? How could that happen? In 1970, so because of the baby boom, something like half of all Americans were under the age of 30. Like, the baby boom generation was truly massive. But that also means that while there were a bunch of hippies in San Francisco and other places, the vast majority of them were also just regular people. And so when the hippies thought that they had the momentum that would change history, it wasn't actually that many people. And so Hunter S. Thompson is really like, oh, that was bullshit. Or He doesn't say that was bullshit, but he's sort of, he's saying like, well, you know, it was really great. It felt great when it lasted Earlier in the speech, he talks about how, you know, I could, could go on my bike and go anywhere I wanted and find people as high and fucked up as I was, and it was awesome. But really, he's realizing by the early 70s that it wasn't real, or that it wasn't what he thought it was, which is also what American Dream isn't what he thought it was either. It's not the, you know, you can better yourself through all your hard work. It's Las Vegas. So is he criticizing the counterculture of the 60s or just calling it naive? Or uh, Probably call, definitely calling it naive. Or fully baked for most of them? Definitely baked. I mean, looking back, you can definitely say that it was, that the aspir- it was very aspirational, but and there was absolutely no chance, you know, free love was just going to be a thing for everybody. That they, like, obviously, whether Hunter S. Thompson was thinking that in 1970, probably. He was probably thinking something along those lines. I felt like he this this is like this one passage, and then there's like one other part very near the end of the book when he starts talking about the crucial moments of the '60s, which is literally 86 percent into the book. It's like I feel like he spent 85 percent of the book talking about whatever he did, and then realized, oh, I'm supposed to say something, <laughs> you know. And he has all just these passages about being high and funny shit, but there's no clear anything there. And it's just like this, this in the wave speech are these two moments where he kind of breaks the fourth wall, I guess, and talks to the reader directly. And the passage I'm talking about later is when he starts talking about how the movement of the sixties got all fucked up when everybody thought they could just find a guru to fix things, right? How the Beatles went with the, the Maharashi or whatever the fuck he was guy in India, and then that was just stupid. And then, you know, that led right to, like, the Charles Manson kind of thing, and that was it. And then he talks about the South Hansel Angels. This is the quote I'm looking for. The final split came at Altamont four years later, which is a big rock festival where the Hells Angels killed a dude. Uh, they were the security. You know that uh, Altamont yeah, mm-hmm. Speedway or whatever the fuck it was? Where they were paid in beer 
<laughs> and they kill the black guy in like the front row while the Stones played. Uh, anyway, um, I long... thought it was Jefferson Airplane. I know the Stones played Stones. that show. Was it Airplane? Was I it think Jefferson, Jefferson Airplane was literally no. the, it was their set when that when no, this happened. I would kill someone to stop. Yeah, they needed to listen to them. Now, if it was Jefferson Starship, different story. It would have long been clear to everybody except a handful of rock industry dopers in the national press. The orgy of violence at Altamont merely dramatized the problem. The realities were already fixed. The illness was understood to be terminal, and the energies of the movement, all caps, or capitalized, were long since aggressively dissipated by the rush to self-preservation. I feel like he's saying, like, whatever intentions it had, like, people were not able or willing to realize whatever it is they really wanted, which he never really talks about what it is they wanted either. Maybe he's implying they don't know. I pretty, I mean, I think it's clear that the hippies didn't know what they wanted. I mean, it's true of a lot of movements like that. But you go back and you look at the cover, like the news articles and like Life magazine and like that the later 60s, and it's like they're fucking homeless teenagers who have hitchhiked and blown their way to California. To and this doesn't this sound exactly 95% of the same stuff with Occupy 15 years ago. Occupy Wall Street was definitely a counterculture for the time that existed. I did actually go down and visit it um, on on a Saturday. Because it reminded you of the hate when you were young. <laughs> oh, yeah, just like that. And, you know, there are people camped out. There are people playing. There was a drum circle. There are people handing out socialist literature and stuff like that. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> and then I think... Two or three weeks later is when they sent in the police in the middle of the night to just, like, arrest everybody and tear it all down. So what made... I can't tell by your tone how awesome that really was. What do you mean by I mean, awesome? by awesome, it means, like, hey, yeah, this is, like... I mean, it was different. And I, there really was a fucking Trump circle. There really was. Um, Listen, I like shitting in a bucket as much as the next guy. But living in a tent and playing in a drum circle sounds like a fucking Greek myth punishment to me it was all this it was in many ways similar to the hippies it was like you know this is cool and people are having a good time it's like and they want to change things but in the end they didn't really have the means to or also largely did not really agree on what changes to make and so it was a mostly leaderless movement as was you know the hippies hippies counterculture there's a million different groups with a million different wants, and it doesn't really work out. Because once again, compared to the rest of the population, it's an extraordinarily small amount of people. You know, the baby boomers went on to, you know, vote. Enough Crush of them that voted for Reagan <laughs> eight years later uh, to definitely put him over the age, edge in 1980, and then voted for Trump in very large numbers. So really, like, the baby boomers does. weren't counterculture. It was just only a few of them. And they're, now they're all, you know, statistically, they're like, own multiple homes and have, like, high positions in companies that they refuse to retire from. <laughs> and believe everything they see on Facebook. <laughs> I mean, partly as, maybe maybe there's something to, like, what's the um, the Churchill thing, right? If you're a young young person, you're not liberal, you have no heart. But if an older, when you come older, you're not conservative, you have no brain kind of thing. Like just tr- traditionally, people have different kind of values and goals as a young person. They get older, they change their. They realize as Hunter S. Thompson is about self preservation. You realize, like, well, actually, I need to fucking pay my bills at a certain point. 
and I need to not shit in a bucket at a drum circle. So let me go cut my hair and go work, which I feel is like what most of those hippies ended up doing. And the many other like tangential hippies, like most people weren't hippies in the 60s. There was a handful of people that just got a lot of coverage because they lived in San Francisco. And then yeah. a bunch of them made music. It was the same in Occupy. There any Occupy? Bunch of Occupy was Clark. like 150 people. Yeah, they made a even they smaller. Made a lot of press, they, they made had made big flash press coverage, and they had so much coverage. It was all anyone talked about for weeks, months. And they just got them out of there and get the fuck out of here, bums. Pretty go, much. Go blog about this. <laughs> and they did. Do blogs exist yet? In the yes. yeah, twenty eleven. Like, yeah, to the, yeah. They, there was blogs. It was Twitter at that point, I think. Oh, was it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Twitter was a thing. Some of them, you know, had Zangos live journals about it, presumably. <laughs> I have one more beer. It's not a very... I don't really want to save it again. I'm just going to drink it somewhere else. But Drink it. They talk about marijuana in the book, though they never smoke it. I don't remember a passage. But what do you do with it? But puff, puff, uh, as, the, <laughs> as the undercover narcs would have probably said trying to score some. Uh, this is puff, puff, a double dry hopped cloudy IPA from Six Point. That is 9.8% alcohol. Ooh. Isn't that the, the acceleration due to gravity? Uh uh, 9.81, yeah. Meters per second squared, or something. And that's how quickly these movements crash to the ground. Oh, many connections. <laughs> this is a fine beer. Six Point makes, like, again, broad appeal beers that are very good, but not quite as, um... A 9.8 is pretty high for, uh, something like that. But it's also like this Is it little, in the tiny can? Yeah, a little do? baby can. Yeah. It's not like my hands got stung by bees. Like, this is just a <laughs> little can. But yes, it's a, it's a very good beer that you can get at, like, you know... Rite Aid or something. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. medicinal. You don't need to show them your Doctor of Divinity business card. I get one of those. Well, I got ordained in a bullshit internet church so I could do a wedding last year. And, but they're uh, not a doctor, unfortunately. Oh, but they also do doctorates. Ooh, okay. This is. This I is, have heard legend of uh, an online school you take to get your doctorate in paranormal studies. Um, so you never know. Why not? Doing this year. <laughs> I feel like if you got that and then you try to use that title, you are. It's just crazy. No, it's just crazy enough to work. <laughs> Maybe that's the American dream. I think Hunter S. Thompson would do that. Oh, yeah. You know, I, feel I like think he'd be given an honorary one. A lot of people don't ever check credentials like that on resumes and stuff unless you're applying to be like a professor. I mean, it's, it's, it's a doctor of paranormal studies. But if you just put PhD. Oh, yeah, it's supposed true. to be paralegal studies. That's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> Please hire me. <laughs> My degrees are not improving. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ninety percent uh, drugs and uh, smatterings of stuff, which is why I was underwhelmed mm. by this. I thought that it was it was funny and interesting, but in the end, it was just like, ah, eh, whatever. I f- I did not get his message about the American dream as clearly as Nate did. And I wasn't really 100% sure what he was saying. The only couple of clear things is, well, like when he criticized John Lennon, it says, power to the people, right on. John Lennon's political song, 10 years too late. Yeah. Um, it was like the Beatles were famously apolitical. And they really didn't. Yeah. They didn't write any protest songs. They were about fucking submarines. Yellow not, ones. Yeah. Not even like, the U-boats, beware. <laughs> like it was just <laughs> fucking yellow submarines. And glass onions. Warning people. <laughs> Being a walrus. 30 years too late. <laughs> and doing it in the road. <laughs> that's just, that's that's just good stuff. manners. Um, 
Yeah, so it wasn't until after, you know, after kind of they had reached peak fame that John Lennon becomes political. And I found that that was funny. He mentioned that here. But it's like a throwaway line. And I don't know if this article, as it originally appeared in Rolling Stone in 1971, is the kind of place that you put, like, veiled polemicism. <laughs> like, I have, a, I have a strong statement, but I'm going to fucking hide it in between stories about drugs that are ridiculous and you will for, you will not notice the little things in between. I mean, it, it probably helped at the time that people, like, knew his stances on things Broadly, he was the you know known to a certain degree. But by people who read his stuff, they knew his stance on a lot of stuff. And most of his answers were, "Fuck this! This is all bullshit. Everyone's an idiot." Like that. Do you ever see uh, American? Not American Beauty. The fuck am I American saying? Pie. Nope, not that one either. American Five Goes West. I don't think America is in the title. Uh, American American <laughs> Tale. <laughs> almost Famous. That's the movie I was trying to think of. Oh yeah. Uh, American Almost Famous. Amer- almost Famous American. I've seen all of these movies. <laughs> what? Wow. Nate's full of shit. He's, 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 oh. You saw no, Fightful Goes West? <laughs> yes, I have. I mean, it's a classic. It's about me. No. <laughs> um, so in Almost Famous, there's a throwaway line about Hunter S. Thompson. When later on in the movie, the kid, William, is like stalling to deliver his story to Rolling Stone. And uh, Ben Fong Torres, the editor guy, he's like, don't... like." Just turn in the story, man. Don't party with them. We already have one Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> uh, and I guess that was his reputation. It was like the guy who's just going to like get fucked up and write something that's interesting to read. Yeah. But I agree with you, Jimmy. It's, it's almost not journalism. It's gonzo journalism. It's written by gonzo. It's because ah! the meaning is fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about his love of chickens. Gonzo was fucking that chicken, right? I'm not oh, sure. yeah. Was he? Absolutely. Was he choking the chicken? Camilla. That was the name of it. Um, I can't even think of another Muppet to try to make a joke about right now. Kermit. Dr. Teeth. Miss Piggy. All those drugs turned him into a real animal. Sam Eagle. Beaker and Bunsen. That's where you make drugs. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you make LSD. So I also, I thought it was okay. I also, I mean, it's, I actually, my thought was, this is not the weirdest thing we've read. And in fact, no. um, trout fishing in America, way weirder than this was. Uh, so even though there's like intense drug use, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's kind of like, yeah, the story, I mean, he crazy stuff happens to him because he was on so many drugs. And it's kind of funny, but not that weird. It doesn't feel like, it's not magical realism it's just like yeah we got really we got really high that's it that's the story it was almost like a better written tucker max article without as much misogyny and lying no there's no misogyny there's just a you know some casual racism i like when samoans well yeah (laughs) um this this line our trip was different it was a classic affirmation of everything right and true and decent in the national character it was a gross physical salute to the fantastic possibilities of life in this country but only for those with true grit and we were chock full of that my attorney understood this despite his racial handicap (laughs) (laughs) well there you go i don't really i mean i think it's just silly i don't think he's really judging the samoan people but no it's just silly i think it's just silly shit with some musing thrown in there 
It's pontificating. the bitter rantings of an old dick. I feel like if, if you would had asked Hunter S. Thompson, like, what's this about? He would not give you an answer. I'm sure he'd be a douche about it. Like, I already wrote what I had to say. Go read it. Like, I don't, but I don't understand it, sir. Can you clarify? And he'd be like, I can't clarify. I can't make it clearer than that. Any clearer than that, it would be invisible. Like, he'd give you, like, I feel like he'd be a fucking <laughs> asshole and not help. He said as he railed a line of ephedrine. As he just licked, like, a South American toad to see if he can trip off of that. This is the second time I read it. I read it many years ago. Because my wife had a had a copy of it, which she also uh, never read, but she had a <laughs> copy of the book. You know, it's one of those books that when you're in high school or college was cool. It seemed cool, you know, like it was famous. And then she had a copy and then didn't read it. So I read it one day because it was short, and I'm like, "That was stuff that happened." Okay, and then I moved on with my life. And rereading it now, I realized one, I didn't remember any of these things, and two, it's not that great. It's overrated. It's just fine. I'm not sure what, what, what about... I'm sure there are many, many other drug books from this time period. I'm not sure what made this one so famous and so powerful for people. The movie. These days. Was the maybe movie at the popular? time... I, I can only guess that maybe at the time, the way he describes a, a, a writer in a, such a, a publica- widely known publication as Rolling Stone writing about doing that many drugs that would have been different that would have been transgressive and shocking yeah, Shock, it's, it's shocking to a to a degree that you know that would make it more famous and notable probably at the time most people's understanding of drugs was the same as the fbi agents at the narc conference like they probably were like oh groovy hip with it you know not necessarily that, readers <laughs> of rolling stone possibly which at this time was still very much a counterculture kind of thing. Oh, uh, yeah. It was based in San Francisco, right? It only started in 67. It's like a product of that time. And still was mostly about music back then. <laughs> the initial review from the Times said, quote, to not even bother trying to understand the novel. It was pretty negative. It was not big for the mainstreamers. But it became the popular the squares, The squares liked it. <laughs> the squares probably didn't like it. I thought it would make them hip. They would know what's happening. They have to want it. You have to be groovy or above. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an amusement park. To ride. Cormac McCarthy apparently said it's a classic of our time and one of the few great modern novels. So uh, that guy's opinion means nothing to me now. <laughs> I mean, I understand why people like it. But I, I, you know, I, I, the stuff I liked in it, I wish there was more of. Like, I wish there was more of them at the conference. I wish there was more of, like people's perception of drugs versus what the drugs actually do rather than just like convincing maids that to be CIs for like two thirds of the book. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. You guys are fucking crazy. But in the end, like if you're trying to make like a, a statement, there was very little in there that wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's all, I'm sure the whole thing is a statement, but I, uh, the, the parts that were interesting to me were the s- smallest part of the book. Yeah, I can see that. I think if you go back and you read, the Rolling Stones or other kinds of counterculture magazines from this time, like Crawdaddy and all those other ones. I don't know what that is. Crawdaddy was another big music magazine. Was it a Zydeco magazine? No, it's not. It's <laughs> just, just about... Rolling Stones, but Zydeco. Zydeco. Just about crustaceans. It was uh, Dr. John's magazine. Well, you had to read it in the right place and the right time. <laughs> but you read... As I had to... When I was... 
doing my thesis for my master's degree, I had to read a lot of these for research. It's so pretentious. It's like picture like the fucking most obnoxious rock critic. And then he thinks he also has like to change the world politically. Mm, Yeah. Like, oh, and that's what every writer was like. So they're trying to be deep and clever and also hip and with it. And in it, reading it now, a lot of that stuff is so dated and so, so pretentious. And they're full of shit. And we're full of shit, of course. But this book, I felt felt like that too. It is entertaining. I actually just wish... It is he, entertaining. I wish he took out the shit. Like, I'm searching for the American dream because he didn't do that much fucking searching. He just got high a lot. And I know I, I sound feel like, like a I fucking like the whole... old Republican church lady saying that. But that's what he did. He just, I'm going to get really high and be a degenerate. Oh, the American dream's stupid. Like I, f- I feel like the searching for the American dream thing is you're kind of supposed to Im- infer. That's when you take things from it, right? Not imply. He's implying it. We infer. Yes. We infer that this weekend of his life is how he lives his life. And searching for the American dream is that's how he's doing it. This is the results of it so far. Like, it's not this weekend that he's doing that. Like, he's like, what, are you, what the fuck are you doing to yourself? What are you doing all the time? He's like, I'm searching for the fucking American dream. Like, it's not saying, like, right now, right here, this this weekend, he's saying, my whole life is that. and This is what I'm doing. It's kind of like a, a snapshot of a life of debauch. Debauch? Is that in the Netherlands? <laughs> yeah, it Debauch. Is. Debauch? <laughs> yeah. Sort of Hoover? Mm. <laughs> Where are you Near could Schnarf do a lot of drugs. <laughs> so, who should read it? If you like drugs... Uh, you probably don't Brad read to read it. Why would you do this? Why would you read this book when you have drugs? Then, <laughs> yeah, you don't need to, you don't need to read it. Um, I'm like a moderate like, fan of drugs. <laughs> if you're like an enthusiast, but not like a, if you're a dabbler, maybe you're not full cool. You're maybe groovy. If you're a bitter cynic, yes, then maybe if we. If, we if you even, want to read a book that's more about poppers than any other book, this might be the only one. It's in in the the ratio of poppers to butt play is just fucking out of whack. Well, the butt play is implied. Well, with the with the the girl that they abducted. <laughs> at any point, there could be butt play with this. With the amount of poppers they're doing, I'm surprised that like he didn't like just prolapse. Just yeah, just, <laughs> it was just his ass would just fall out of itself like a wormhole. <laughs> Like a slinky, <laughs> like those, like those things at the museum gift shop with like the water tube that squishes back and forth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Don't put your penis in those. Anyway, um, <laughs> Nate, what do you think? We should read it. Frat boys who want to seem learned. There isn't a single Coors Light in this entire book. They had a case of Budweiser in the trunk. Nor are there any visors with your hair exposed. Do frat boys still wear those? I don't know. Well, tell us what you thought. Send us an email to drunkguysbookclub at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at drunkguysbc. Or go to Facebook and Instagram at drunkguysbookclub. And if you've listened this long, why not uh, leave us a review wherever you're listening. And if you're, you know, really flush, head over to patreon.com slash drunkguysbookclub to support the podcast. And if you didn't like it, then don't listen anymore. It was free. And you can also do drugs. And check out the Hop Tub Network, a network of independent beer podcasters. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.